Welcome to Kuden, the radio show and podcast for self-defense and martial arts news, interviews, techniques, and history. Hosted by Sheehan Jeffrey Miller and Shidoshi Eric White. Sheehan Miller is a 13th degree black belt and master instructor of Warrior Concepts International in Sunbury, Pennsylvania. Shidoshi Miller's martial arts career spans over 30 years and has taken him around the world to train with some of the world's best martial arts masters. Shidoshi Eric White has been a student of Sheehan Miller's for over a decade. Together, they will answer your questions, discuss techniques, history, and current issues important to you, the self-defense-minded citizen and the practicing martial artist. Submit your questions by email to warriorc at warrior-concepts-online.com. Hello and welcome to this next episode of Kuden. Thank you everybody who's joining us live on the show and all of you that are catching up later. Uh, remember, you can always submit questions to us. Uh, if you have a problem where you can't join us live, you can always get those questions into us ahead of time, and we'll try to get to them on the program so you can catch up with them when you get them on the podcast. There's many ways to get to the podcast, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. We're on a lot of the major providers, but uh, great. Always enjoy having the folks with us live. I think it's just one of those things that kind of sets us apart from other podcasts that we try to make this as live and interactive as possible. Uh, I'm Eric White, and I've got uh, Jeffrey Miller with me. How are you today, sir? I don't know. <laughs> Whoa. You turned into a Lee dog on the for phone. a moment there. Were you barking? No, Lee got on the phone and made me sick, I think. No, I'm fine. I just <laughs> yeah, I've been talking all day. It's the nature of my freaking life. I'm either teaching at the dojo or I'm you know, teaching my online, uh, my long-distance guys, or I'm doing some kind of training or presentation for a corporation, so... You know. you know what? Oh. It would make an awesome. <laughs> it would make an awesome class uh, uh, to to um, have you say nothing. Not not that what you say isn't good, but I think it would just be an interesting class for students to try to figure out things without there being any speech involved. Uh, it'd be good training for it, like when you go to Japan and you don't know what they're saying if you don't speak Japanese, right? And you. Oh, I was just going to say I've already. I've already, I was going to say we've already done that. I've shown up late for things and so they could have figured it out yeah <laughs> you let things okay <laughs> right. that's right anyway yeah well interesting uh enough we're, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, training in japan and and why some go and others don't and why you go and how that differs but um i know first we have uh a question to get to from this looks like one of your long distance students is it gian oh uh gianfranco yeah. 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 Uh, uh, and he, it looks he, like he's in the UK somewhere. Is that? Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. he's uh, currently going through the Eight Gates uh, uh, program. So uh, uh, he actually submitted a ton of questions, and well, uh, not really a ton, yeah. but that we're going to require a whole <laughs> lot more than we have for uh, a given show to respond to. So uh, yeah, I sent out that preemptive. Uh, heads up kind of email yesterday and yeah uh, he was one of the folks that submitted some things so yeah it's all good we're gonna have to spread his stuff out over a couple of episodes because uh, i love it when a thinker engages but yeah um we don't have enough time when the thinkers engage <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right now he's given us plenty of ammunition for the next few episodes but um that's I right know that's right. one we want to get to today we'll kind of start with this one um he mentions the Togakaryu sword technique, uh, saying, you know, mm -hmm. it's based on spear technique or that he's heard you state that, um, you know, is, is, and he starts asking about the long grip of the Togak, uh, Togakaryu sword. 
you know, is that as a counterbalance so you can do more with moving the tip uh, of the sword around, spin it around quicker, or, you know, what's the reason for that? What other reasons? Why is the grip longer? So a uh, really good question. I like that, that he's, he's picked up on that detail of uh, the the length of the handle of the sword. Yeah, yeah. Um, seems odd to most um, modern martial artists because, you know, if you go through martial arts magazines, uh, things like that, there's, uh, you know, there's this shorter hand guard, right? Mm -hmm. uh, or not hand guard, but shorter handle, uh, the tsuka. Tsuka? Uh, yeah, tsuka mm -hmm. on these things. And so, you know, what gives? I mean, we get used to this kind of length, um, but actually the length isn't that much different from uh, the Tagagi Yoshin sword, the Kukushinden sword. Um, as a matter of fact, any sword that predates the Sengoku, uh, the uh, Meiji Restoration, not the Meiji Restoration, the, um, uh, oh boy, the Tokugawa era. Mm, mm. So Tokugawa's took over, right? Uh, there was this enforced, uh, <laughs> enforced piece, right? Uh, but as a part of that, what they did was they regulated absolutely mm. everything, you mm -hmm. know, kind of like a lot of people want to do with our society today, right? We'll just, you know, make everything, uh, have, have everything rules everybody's, you know, so everybody's equal, right? Um, and um, so everything was regulated, the way you bow, how far you bow, uh, mm. all these things, right? Everything, right? Um, including the dimensions and specifications for swords. And um, so why does this matter? Well, um, I think we've talked about this in previous, uh, on previous shows. Um, the specifications were, that were given, um, quite coincidentally, nudge, nudge, just happened to match the sword specifications of the Tokugawa family. Hmm. Okay, so what does that have to do with anything? Well, what it, what it has to do with is that, um, you know, uh, prior to that point, every school, every family had their own sword specifications, okay, had their own dimensions and things like that. So uh, uh, the the sword was, was uh, really designed so that it fit their techniques, right? Uh, mm. or the techniques were designed around a certain type of sword. And so since our stuff came out of the Sengoku Jedi Warring States period and before, uh, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of variance. There was a lot of uh, differences, okay? But again, you know, if you go to Isuksete's dojo, he has a lot of the, he has a lot of the, uh, a lot of swords for sale, right? Some are sharpened, some are not. Uh, but they're all um, replicas of swords from the different schools, okay? Uh, the uh, Togakure sword that I have, which was a gift from students, uh, was actually made by, I think the company is Chen Yen, which may or may not be connected with Paul Chen, who makes some really fantastic swords. Um, but um, the, all the handles are about the same length. Okay, mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because uh, the sword is based on leverage and it's actually uh, designed around uh, the idea of the spear and the halberd, and then, you know, you just kind of shorten this thing, right? So the, the tsuka, the handle, is supposed to work based on leverage, okay? Mm -hmm. And while the togakure, or not the togakure, the tokugawa sword, 
keep mispronouncing the Tokugawa sword, um, you know, everybody's shorter, right, in Japan, right? So um, here's this thing, right? It just happened to be their thing, right? But uh, typically speaking, the tsuka should be the length of your forearm plus your grip, right? So if I'm holding the grip, if I'm holding it with my right hand, just the right hand for the moment, and I'm holding it properly so that there's this two or three finger space between my uh, middle finger, my communications finger, and the underside of the tuba, right, the handguard, um, because I'm going to be holding it along the lifeline of my, of my hand, right? So my index finger isn't going to be wrapped around the handle of the sword because the index finger, as you know, is used as your break, right? It's what mm -hmm. stops the sword uh, during the draw or during a cut or whatever so that you don't over um, overswing and so that you don't torque your wrist and, and all that wonderful stuff, right? So here's this thing. So from that position right there, if you lift your forearm vertically, right, and the sword is going up, vertically, right? The butt end of the tsuka, what is that end cat name are called? I can't remember at the moment. Anyway, it doesn't matter, mm. right? That should come just shy of the uh, that hinge, that ball, that hinge of the inside of the elbow joint, right? So right down to the base of that, that forearm muscle heading toward the elbow, right? That should be the length of your tsuka, okay? So um, that's one of the reasons that it's longer, okay? Uh, not about counterbalance or whatever. It's actually quite a mundane reason, right? The, the reason that the handle is that length is because that was the average length of most handles, most tsuka, of most schools. So we have this handle. We have a shorter blade inside of a standard length uh, saya right, uh, uh, scabbard, chief, right? So by all uh, appearances, with the, with the blade in the scabbard, it looks like it should be a katana, right? So uh, it's actually a, um, uh, a physical representation of this Kyujutsu Tenkan, disguising truth and falsehood, okay? Um, the other... Here, here's another thought for the for the reason that the think thing could be just as long because you know, idea. I mean, could they make the handle any length they want? Sure. Okay. But one, there's a disguise thing going on. And two, this longer handle gives you the opportunity to catch the the handle or to, to catch the sword for, on a on a draw when you need to get it out very very quickly. Um, you have more range, you have more area, more surface area to be able to grab it, okay? Because the Togakure Ryu drawing technique is not as uh, not as specific as, say, Koto Ryu or uh, some of these other uh, specific sword schools, right? The whole idea with the initial draw is to catch it any way you can, get it out very, very quickly, do all this little levering thing with your hand, to get the point of the sword, the boshi, at him, and you're actually uh, executing a stab to the face of the throat on your on the initial draw, which stalls him, and then you can, you know, grab it correctly and, and move on, you know, as you as you go. Um, but the Togakure sword drawing method, I mean, you know, you could end up grabbing 
part handle and part suba. You could end up grabbing it in the middle. You could end up grabbing it on the very end. The whole idea of it, the whole point, no pun intended, is to get it flipped over so that you could stab at it. Okay, so the first the first action on the draw is not a it's not a big sweeping cut like you might see in uh, Koto or Gyoko or uh, trying to remember um, some of these other sword schools at the moment. But, uh, anyway, so do you get the idea? You you get the idea because you've done some of this yeah. uh, Togakure stuff with mm-hmm. just getting it out and flipping it over. And it's, it it happens very very quickly, right? Uh, but only because the, sh- the blade is shorter, right? Otherwise, you'd have to have this standard longer draw kind of thing, right? So, um, but yeah, the big re- the big reason for it um, is completely outside of the sword uh, drawing or cutting or stabbing or whatever. It's Kyojutsu Tenkan. Okay? It's you know it needs to look like anybody else's sword, so that when this guy you know approaches you. He makes the assumption, erroneously, but he makes the assumption that the sword is what he thinks it looks like, just like everything in Ninjutsu, right? Okay. But it's never what it looks like. So you've got this uh, uh, tsuka handle of a very specific length, right? And uh, most people that have been around swords, um, you know, all their lives, right? The guys out there doing this thing, right? He knows that the tang of that blade will go so far because of the length, because of the length of the handle, right? If it doesn't go to a certain level, right, the leverage itself will split the blade away from the handle, right? So he knows that it, it, it's got to be this thing, right? Um, and then based on the length of the saya, right, the scabbard, uh, that tells him, you know, tells him, quote-unquote tells him, uh, how long the blade is. So he knows again, quote-unquote, knows how long it should take for that blade to come out. Right? And, of course, mm-hmm. it's going to come out very, very quickly, but there's certain things required um, to, to make that happen. right? So uh, he's going to gauge what he does based on what he sees. Right? Unfortunately, he'll be wrong. Well, fortunately for us, he'll be wrong because the blade comes out much, much faster. It's kind of like, um, here's, a, here's a modern example, right? Uh, and this may not cross over for, for some of my friends who are in countries where perhaps you're not allowed to have firearms or whatever, but, you know, if you've watched movies or, you know, you do some, some study on the side, at least theoretical study, um, if you actually have experience with it, this will start to make uh, a lot more sense because uh, experience is what brings the knowledge to life. Um, if we're looking at drawing a handgun from a holster, right, and Eric, you've done some of this training as well, right? Um, the the average, the typical, right? The typical way of doing it, right, is that we uh, we lift the, the firearm, the, the handgun, out of the holster, or mm-hmm. in the case of a shoulder rig, right, we we pull it out. Okay. Uh, typically, the firearm is pulled from the holster in the same way that most people think of drawing a sword, by pulling the blade out of the scabbard. And that works really, really well if you're tall and you've got mm-hmm. long arms, okay? Not so much if you're 5'6", <laughs> which is my height, and shorter, okay? Um, because the, you're, you're looking at drawing something, uh, it's a 36-inch razor blade, right? The entire weapon itself is give or take about, what, 
uh, 48 mm. to 52 inches, that kind of thing, right? So um, not, not, not an easy task for somebody who back in the day um, when this stuff was developed was on average about 4.2, okay? Um, my guys in the U.K. and the ones with the metric system and all that are going to have to uh, adjust for that because I'm talking about 4 feet 2 inches tall, right? So um, uh, you have to do your little conversion there. But that was the average height of a, of a warrior or of a person during the Sengoku Jedi, uh, Jedi War and States period. Right. So, uh, anyway, so the, the idea is, you know, the typical idea is draw the weapon out of the holster. But that requires some really odd mechanics with our arm, shoulder, and all that, where you've got to draw this thing, and then you have to, you know, bring this thing up online um, so that the muzzle is pointing at, not just in the direction of the target, but the tube, right, the barrel, has to be from butt end, from, from chamber to muzzle aligned with the target, right, up on the same level of what you want to hit. Because while the muzzle may be up high enough to be pointing at the target, if the chamber is still high, right, you're going to be shooting into the ground. So, but there's this big thing, right? Well, that requires extra time, right, because you have hmm. to, you're actually, you're actually folding the arm as you draw this thing and then having to extend it, Okay. So uh, typically the elbow goes up, the hand is down, you've got to drop the elbow, bring the, the arm back up on place. Um, and, yes, if you're really good at levering the elbow, you can cut down on that amount of time and you're not doing everything from either the shoulder end or the, the hand end. Uh, but, again, if we can switch that over and look at sword drawing technique, right, then uh, – we get a better idea of what's going on, right? Because if when we need to draw the weapon, at the moment we grab the, the butt of the weapon, right, the moment we grab the handle, if we drop the, the holster off, uh, off the weapon, right, yes, the muzzle's still pointing down, or in the case of a side rig, it's pointing behind us, but it's now clear, right? It's not stuck, right? So now it's a matter of, getting the, the muzzle on target. And, again, if we don't think about swinging it through this big area, okay, uh, like a, uh, a typical bato or iaijutsu kind of sword draw where, you, you, you know, you do this big thing and then you got to bring the whole blade around to do the cut, right? If we do it based on the whole spear idea, right, with a sword, it only has to clear the mouth of the saya, mouth of the handguard, and then you just do this little levering thing with your hand, and the whole weapon literally pivots around a central point. It flips over, right? Boom. Flips mm -hmm. over, and now your arm, being compressed, now can stab, okay? Now it can, it can extend, okay? So it's just a faster way to get the, the, the boshi around, uh, you know, to, to affect something. Well, it's the same thing with the handgun. Uh, if we drop the holster off the handgun at the moment that clears or at the instant that clears, instead of trying to swing the arm up on line with the shoulder, if we just drop our elbow, right, we've got a hold of this thing, we drop the hips, and if we just push the elbow down, what we find is that the forearm flips up in place, right? Now, is the arm extended? Nope. The weapon's right beside us, okay, at hip level. So if we just drop the, the elbow, we can now pull the trigger 
and engage the target with the first round before we create a normal conventional sight line. Okay, so we just bring that around, boom, and we can continue pulling the trigger all the way up to elevated position. But if we draw like most people draw, where the muzzle has to catch up, and it's generally not on the target until the hand is at shoulder level, we can't pull the trigger until it hits that point without wasting ammunition, right? So in this case, what we're going to do is drop the holster, do that little levering thing, and we can now get that first round off and continue to fire rounds all the way up into that position, making every round uh, more likely to, to hit because we're, we're actually shooting, we're firing, uh, long before the average person gets to their quote-unquote firing position. So uh, I teach this as a primary uh, drawing thing because it, it fits, it's the same principles uh, as, our, as our sword drawing uh, fundamentals. Now, do you still have to learn the other sword drawing thing? Yes. Well, why? Well, that one actually has more power when it comes to cutting. If you're going to do a draw and cut kind of thing, then that's going to have more power. So you need to be able to do that conventional thing to do a draw and cut. The tobacco day thing isn't designed to draw and cut. It's designed to draw and poke, which creates a stalling action, and then you can cut through something or, you know, uh, follow up with a different attack. So um, it, it's about speed of engagement, not necessarily, um, you know, the, the uh, it, it's not about power and, and, and that kind of thing, right? But, um, you know, so we can borrow these things. We can borrow the, the just a the standard sword thing, uh, drawing from everything, right, and apply that to getting the weapon out of the holster, and then we can apply the Tobacco uh trick of just using this little levering action to, to get things uh, on faster. And I know you've done some training like that. I don't know if there's mm -hmm. anybody else on that's, that's been to one of my uh, gun courses, but, uh, yeah, so... Anyway, um, I don't know. Uh, hopefully that will help. I, I don't know if uh, uh, Jen Franco is on on or not, or if he just listens in via uh, the, the recordings. But anyway, do you have anything? You, you've been to some of these training things. Do you have anything to toss uh, yeah. either on um, for the sword thing? Yeah, a couple of things. Again, how he points out kind of the longer handle. Uh, in, in my experience, I've seen – uh, that be used in a number of ways. You kind of pointed out some of those in catching the arm. Um, but also I recall uh, Soke showing uh, the switching of hands uh, on a handle uh, of a sword in that, uh, you know, the conventional kind of grip, two hands, right hand up front, uh, left hand in the back, um, mm -hmm. or at the bottom, near the pommel, uh, that, that he showed kind of this swapping of hands uh, and how some of the kyujutsu there was of, well, looking like you don't know what you're doing because <laughs> you're holding Absolutely. that thing backwards, right? Uh, and so to, uh, you know, experienced sword person, they'd be thinking, this guy has no clue what he's doing except the next move uh, entailed kind of a uh, stepping back motion and and then extending the the right hand which was then holding the pommel of the the tsuka and so now you had this extremely long uh you know method in which to poke with because the handle was so long and you're holding it you know in a different fashion so 
I think just right. the longer handle gave you a little bit more, and kind of pointing back to the spear idea as well, a little bit more of uh, something more like spear or, or staff. It's a longer reach, right? Swap your hands, much like we do that kind of sliding swapping of a grip on a bow. Uh, same kind of thing. This quick kind of swapping of a grip uh, can be done with the with a little more ease with this longer handle idea. Uh, so I thought that was kind of right. sneaky and fun and interesting that uh, yeah. how switching the grip, too, is something that could be done with that longer handle. And, again, a lot of this regulated stuff, you know, from Japanese culture where it's a right-hand dominant society. Uh, modern era, they're giving a little bit more leeway to, quote-unquote, left-handers, but that was not historically the case, right? You will be right-handed. Everything is right-handed. That's the correct way to do it. Uh, you know, that kind of thing, right? So regardless of the size of the uh, the tsuka, right, the handle, when you reach across with your right hand to do the draw, that right hand is supposed to catch the tsuka, okay? it's supposed to, right, catch the tsuka just below the handguard, okay? So that tells this person how close they can get for a near miss, and then they can counter right? So they've already got this stuff worked out because they have all this experience. But if you grab this handle at the base instead, right, at the at the pummel of it, and you flip it over, right, you now have an extra six to eight to ten inches of reach, mm-hmm. right, uh, to execute this thing. So uh, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge game changer, right? So uh, it's kind of like in, in the, um, in some of the gun courses that I do, uh, we'll have people go up on online and we'll have them do what sometimes I call um, uh, street shooting or I've used the terms, uh, uh, I don't know, gang shooting or, you know, thug shooting or whatever, where the hand, the, you know, you turn the weapon sideways and do the, you know, do the gangsta kind of thing, right? Um, to make it a point that uh, gravity has nothing to do with the operation of the mechanics or the, or the, mechanical workings of that weapon, right? Uh, a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll fumble around. And they, they, you know, the weapon always has to be upright because there's a correct way to do it where the sights are up and the magazine opening on a, on a semi-automatic or whatever or the trigger is down, right, except that it will shoot sideways, it will shoot upside down or whatever. So sometimes we'll do some, some training where, just like with the Togakure sword thing, you get it out as quickly as possible, um, or if, you know, you're fumbling with it, it flips over in your hand and you're holding it and the sights are down, right, trigger is up, and you've got, let's say, your ring finger on the trigger. So you're holding the handle, but your ring finger's on the trigger. Pull the trigger, right? Mm-hmm. Stop trying to fumble around with it to get it right side up um, so that you can do it right, right? Or, you know, you have the fear that when you pull the trigger, uh, it'll flip out of your hand. Well, then my suggestion is you take it out and... Um, do some practice with it in these different angles, uh, and you'll also understand why we're not a big proponent of you know the the whole bent wrist thug kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But as long as mm-hmm. you know you've got that that uh, wrist confidence, then it's all good. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. So it's just get get it to happen, right? Because you can you can pull the trigger once and get this guy ducking for cover or hit him, right? And then you know if you need to reseat it or whatever, you you bought yourself a second or two. And then you can keep on going, right? But the whole idea is to get it out, get that first round off as quickly as possible, and here's some ways to do it. 
Um, and I didn't mean to cross over to gun. It just kind of popped up. Yeah, but, sure. Uh, well, it uh, brings it to the modern era. Handle, <laughs> yeah, and remember that all weapons have multiple purposes, right? Just like with the Togakure long staff, it is one of the few staff methods that came out of ancient Japan that included punching and kicking while using the staff. Right? Most systems, mm-hmm. you hold a staff in your hand, you're striking or whatever you're doing with the staff, okay? Uh, with this one, right, you can punch somebody with the hand that's holding the staff. You can kick. There's all kinds of things that are, that are mixed in with this, right? So with the sword, with that longer handle, right, um, as, as I'm attacking or I'm countering or whatever, I can shift forward and punch his drawing hand or his ribs or his elbow or whatever with the pummel of that sword handle. It's, it, reach, it sticks out farther, so why not hit him with it, right? So I'm going to hit him with it and then finish the draw to do the next cut. So all these tactics that come out of Togakure school are about getting him to stall and then you do the finish, right? Because he's got a longer weapon. He, he has an advantage, right? He may have armor, all these things, right? So yeah. um, we want to do something that causes him to stall. So and I've done a fair amount of cutting practice on, you know, rolled up tatami and, you know, we've done mm-hmm. bottles filled with water. And so a couple different, you know, things. And right. and in my experience of that, too, just kind of, you know, he points out asking asking about the long grip, is that a counterbalance or a leverage kind of thing, Um that the the longer handle certainly gives you this, uh, you know, way to kind of leverage and make a lot of power as you kind of lever your hands. But it's it's been my experience in terms of the cutting that that's not really, uh, you know, you, you have to really focus on how it moves the, the blade kind of forward to cut and not like smash. I think that's something that right. I learned right. kind of early on was that you, you can easily lever this thing. You got the nice long handle, but... Uh, the levering has to be done with the proper motion. Otherwise, um, it's kind of like if you were to try to cut uh, a piece of meat or something. You know, if just if you're just whacking straight down on it, you could beat on the thing really hard like a hammer, and you're just going to kind of chunk it up a little bit and not really cut. But a very light, Absolutely. easy push or pull really cuts into it easy. And and so I think you know that's something that's key too. That if you're going to be working on this in terms of the cutting dynamics, that they're not really it's easy to try to lever for a lot of power but that's not really what it's for i guess right yeah we've we've got to have the knee movement to create a forward or backward push or pull on the edge as it's making contact um so we don't have to do it with our arms right but we do this thing so that it literally just cuts right through something otherwise we're hacking like we have a cleaver Okay. Yeah. And the problem with that, and again, people practice with different types of items and all that. So some things that works really well on, but for a human body that's you know soft and the and the muscle gives and and that kind of thing, right? Um, while it would seem like it'd be okay to just hack through it, we have to remember that a, a katana or any Japanese sword is not sharpened in the same way that a cleaver is sharpened. Okay, a cleaver is sharpened by you know using rotating stones that actually scoop into the metal and move toward the kisaki, move toward the edge, right? So it's, it's designed to cut like a, like a chisel kind of thing, right? Uh, you can hack on things and just, or a boning knife, same thing, right? But um, 
other knives, uh, certain types of butcher knives and uh, these swords and everything, uh, K-bar, right, uh, military mm-hmm. uh, knives like that, uh, typically hunting knives, that kind of thing, you start at the base and you run it forward, right? So it's, it's your, your, uh, the, the metal gets sharpened in a very different way. And I know how this sounds kind of a, kind of a, like it's a moot point, but, uh, you know, there are, uh, there are modern things, right? We don't always, we, we don't all need, um, uh, sharpening stones, right? We don't have to be like Daniel Boone or pick somebody from your culture or whatever <laughs> that, you know, can, can do this stuff, right? Um, I'm just very good at, at sharpening knives, but there are these, you know, things you can get you know, in the store, uh, some, if, if anybody ever uses a, uh, like an electric can opener, those mm-hmm. things are even usable these days or whatever, right? On a lot of these things, they have a knife sharpener as a part of the unit, right? So when the motor runs, right, it, it's running the can opener, uh, part of it, but there's also this grinding stone that's in there that's moving, right? Um, if anybody's ever noticed that after they use certain types of devices like that, the knife that you were trying to sharpen is now actually, it actually cuts worse than it did before you tried to sharpen it. It's because you used something on it that sharpened the knife in a different direction than that knife is designed to cut, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like if it's a vegetable knife, it's typically uh, sharpened like a cleaver so because you can do chopping with it, right? But, um, but a, um, a butcher knife is designed to slice through meat that kind of thing that uses a gliding cut that's sharpened very differently. Okay. Why do I know these things? Right. I think <laughs> dumb, dumb hobbies. Right. Uh, no, it all came out of, you know, just picking up little things here and there from teachers as you know, about these things. And then, you know, looking at other things. I mean, if I want to get good with a knife and I need to understand, um, you know, how a knife cuts or how a knife stabs or, you know, uh, how they do it, uh, you know, which ones are sharper or, uh, which ones are better for poking as opposed to slicing, uh, whatever, right? Then you go looking for this stuff. Uh, well, maybe you don't, but I did, right? So, um, uh, and so anyway, uh, yeah, that's a, it's a, I thought these were brilliant questions that he, that he came up with. By yeah, the way, so. these are great uh, questions. We'll get to some more of those as, as our episodes go on. Uh, but speaking of, you know, why uh why do you know these things and why the heck do you uh see, search this stuff out <laughs> that that kind of brings us know. to this uh topic of you know why do you still go to Japan uh, some people may look to you and say hey you you fit this master status why spend the 3 to 4 grand or more uh per trip to go why why still uh do that what what do you see the benefit of that being well um I think this is true for anybody that's that's truly training, that the reason that you train today is likely to be very different from the reason that you originally started training. If it's not, then I would highly suggest that that's probably a reason maybe why you're not training or not training as much. Because if the hmm. reason is the same and you've taken care of that reason, right, you've gained that benefit, then you no longer have a reason to train, okay? So hmm. here's an example, right? A lot of people um, go to seminars with higher level or certain types of teachers or go to Japan or whatever, okay? Here's a quick list uh, that have nothing to do with skill, right? <clears throat> Bragging rights, um, 
camaraderie with with other people, right? Um, uh, celebrity status, okay? Uh, do you get where I'm going with this? Mm-hmm. Right? It has, things have nothing to do with skill. Right? They have to do with something that this person feels that they need to either present themselves a certain way or to be seen in a certain light. So one is passive, one is, you know, not, it's, it's, uh, it's not, uh, uh, not aggressive. What is it? It's direct, right? So, mm. uh, so let me find my little notes here because I, I tossed a bunch of things out here. Um, bum, 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 bum. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, they want to they want to train with a certain type of teacher. They want to they want to continue to save that they're training, right? So that's why yeah. a lot of people will do it. Um, but for a lot of folks, right? It's it's bragging rights. I mean. You know, the number of students that have told me uh, that the, the trip to Japan was, you know, once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing, um, you know, it's going to get it out of their system and all that. And um, now, some people I smile and nod because I know it's true. Okay? Mm-hmm. i got a couple of people that are on board to go in the next um, couple of months to a year or two, and I know it's true for them, right? It's a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. They'll have that warm, fuzzy feeling. They'll have those memories. But that's it, Right. And I know other people, uh, one of which might have been on the uh, on this podcast a couple of times. I don't know, maybe you um, made that <laughs> statement, but I made that promise to them that okay, you're you're not going to be more than a couple of days into the trip, but I guarantee that before the trip is over for you, you're going to be trying to figure out how to get back here, right, for more training, right? So. It's because I know, I know that student's intent, right? If they really want training at that high level and it's not a bragging rights kind of thing, it's a personal thing, it's a knowledge thing or whatever, that's going to be very different, okay? So uh, the reason that I continue to go to Japan is quite simply um, because I'm, I'm looking to learn what I don't know, I don't know about mm. the art, about myself, about certain skills. Okay, so I'm not there mm. for kata collecting, right? I can go anywhere for that. In all honesty, I mean, we live in the 21st century. What kata that exists in the Bujinkan can I not find on YouTube? Whether it's being demonstrated great or not on YouTube or I can't go to somebody's seminar or I can't buy a video or a DVD or whatever. I don't know. It's not. And if they're out there, well, okay, um, maybe I could find them, right? But which weapons, which, you know, and there are a couple of holes in things. Like there's not a hole out there on the Kasari. There's some, but not a lot. The Kyukutsu Shoge and the Kasari Gama, some, but not a lot, right? Uh, and the stuff that is out there, I'm like, Maybe I should do a program, um, <laughs> but anyway. Uh, but it's it's to learn what I to to learn what I don't know. I don't know. It's it's to dive into that realm of the unknown unknown, right? Um, and I'm looking for those those few, right? I'm looking for a few aha moments that's going to bring other things together, because for me it's it's still about transformation. But it's not that much about self-defense anymore, right? Um, for me, 
the self-defense is in getting these little things that are going to make a huge difference for me to protect myself against somebody who's just that good, right? I mean, you know, but how how good do I have to get uh, to to be able to defend against the average attacker, right? I mean, at this point, I'm trying to defend against somebody who, in all honesty, knows this stuff and has popped a gasket. And trust me, they're mm. out there because mm. they're either bragging or threatening or whatever, and they're online and, you know, I'm, of course, I'm not just worried about them. I'm worried about the ones that aren't online. But there's there's only a handful. Yeah. Right? I mean, what's, what's the likelihood that I'm going to run into these people? But I have all this other stuff, right? So do I need it? Well, see, I'm always about transformation, right? But at this point, I'm looking for these things because my focus is more on being a teacher than worried about learning basic self-defense. Okay, I'm way past basic self-defense. But when I say about being a teacher, again, it's not about having celebrity status or bragging rights or look how many kata I know or whatever. When I say about being a good teacher, what I'm trying to do is learn some things that I either missed along the way, were never shared, or I, you know, from my level of understanding when I learned the technique, I thought I knew it, so I skipped right, you know, I, I learned it to a certain extent, and then moved on to the next ones, but I missed some stuff, right? Because mm. as a teacher, my goal is to help people uh, speed up the learning curve, right? So how do I do it? How do I convey this stuff? What was I missing that caused my learning to take as long as it did and that I might still be passing on, right, uh, that I could actually get across to students that will speed up their, their development, Okay, because if you think about this stuff being taught in during the Sengoku Jidai Warring States period, or any of these Warring States period, right, any of these 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 uh, times, right, you did not have a lot of time to learn what you needed to learn to go into action. It's kind of like kind of like going to basic training in the, mm. in the military, right? Yeah, they have eight to sixteen weeks to teach you how to be a functioning member of a team and not some snot-nosed, asinine, individualistic, uh, you know, wannabe who's only in it for himself. And you have to be able to operate all this equipment and understand tactics and, and you know, some at least some limited strategic thinking to be able to be usable should they, should we need to send you off right away, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have months or years to get ready, yeah. okay? which is why during a lot of the periods in uh, ancient Japan, like in the Warring States period, a lot of things like Mitsubishi and some of these other trickery kind of things were created. Uh, they were created because you didn't have the years of training to be able to develop the Kuji and those kind of things that the scrolls say you use to cloud people's minds or to distract them or whatever. You just don't have that kind of time. Right? So what they did was they created some of these, you know, manual tricks. Okay? Um, it's kind of like the difference between somebody who's really, really, really good at, um, they're a magician and they're, they're really good at sleight of hand. Right? Where they can be right up against you and you can't see the card or coin or whatever being manipulated. I mean, to, to your eyes, it looks like it literally just 
you know, goes from one place to another. Um, and, and, you know, that's where they try to convince you that the hand is quicker than the eye. It's not, right? It's skill, right? Mm. And it's when you do it. And it's the, the uh, misdirection and the storyline and, and, you know, those kind of things. Um, the difference between that and teaching somebody or when you first start out, you learn a couple of what we call self-working tricks that work based on mathematics or whatever. Not where you have to count or whatever, but if you just run the routine, the trick will work every time, yeah. right? Mm. You don't have to have, you know, any of this any of this manipulation. You don't have to have manual dexterity or, or whatever. It just, just do this thing, right? Or they create these gimmick boxes or whatever, right, where the, the box is doing the work, right? So that allows somebody to start and, you know, learn some things and maybe start, you know, entertaining their friends or to get started while they're developing all this other stuff, okay? But it's, it's the same thing. Some of these things just take a long time. And I'm not done, right? Um, I, I, I think I truly do live the, the statement that the more I know, the more I know what I don't know, right? It's an old mm-hmm. Japanese or Chinese saying, right? The more I know, the more I know what I don't know. And that drives me to know more. I'm just one of those one of those people. But I am literally looking to learn something that I didn't know I didn't know. Right? And for those people who are confused about this, right, it sounds like I'm being like redundant. I'm not. Right? If I know that there are let's say if I know that there are uh twenty three kata on a Gyokoryu scroll and I know that I have 17 of them, then I know that I'm missing, what, six? Okay? And I know the names of them, right? I know that I don't know those six. So I might go to a seminar where that's being taught, or I might look it up online or whatever, because I'm going after these things that I know I don't know. Okay? I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the things about the techniques or the things about the art or whatever that could really serve me to, to allow me to get things done a lot faster, a lot easier, whatever. I'm looking for the things I don't even know I don't even know. Okay? Like those little pressure points that we hit on your body, right? When you're going through training and you know that you know you have you know you have that that part of your arm or part of your leg or whatever and you know that there's a muscle in there or whatever, but you didn't know <laughs> that there was a sensitive area right there uh, that could be really debilitating let alone knowing how to strike it most effectively so that somebody's leg or arm just goes dead immediately, and you can do it without winding up and hitting like, you know, you've got a sledgehammer or something. How do you make it feel like a sledgehammer? How do you make it break his arm like you hit him with a sledgehammer, but you're not swinging your body and producing or creating power like you're swinging a sledgehammer? See, those are the kind Mm. of things I'm looking for, right? So... Um, yeah, it's about transformation, right? But transformation doesn't occur by getting better at what we're already good at, okay? That's improvement, right? It's, um, uh, what would you call that, um, uh, skill development or, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. But it's not transformation. Transformation is turning one thing into something completely different, right? Uh, I'm not the same person today that I was 20 years ago. I have certain memories about those things, but I'm not that guy. And I'm not just an older version of that guy. 
I do things that I'm in realms and I, I have beliefs and things that are so contrary to what that 20-year-old believed in or did or was able to produce in their life. This it's, it's not just a difference in skill or a difference in skill proficiency. That's the term I was looking for. Uh, mm. It's being able to do things that that 21 or that 20-year-old or whatever had no concept of, right? So uh, it's very different. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the difference between being a master martial artist and being a master. You know, you can be really, really good at a certain set of skills, or you can just be so freaking good, nobody has any clue about how you do it. <laughs> that's, the, that's the magic I'm, I'm trying to steal. Yeah. Right. Anyway, what about you? About uh, well, you, you know, in 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 some cases that's that's very similar for me. I guess it's um, it's always been a good opportunity to to pick up uh, more subtleties of you know techniques and maybe some basics that I I normally w- would miss. Um, you know, I think back to my last trip um, working working on just the. Preparing for the Godon test, um, just these small little subtleties in uh, sitting, in, in the sitting portion of that, that I hadn't really picked up or keyed in on before. Um, so it just kind of pushes me, it's always pushed me to kind of put myself in a different place to be, I don't know, maybe more more open to, like you say, uh, you know, coming across those things you didn't know, you didn't know um, and and just expanding your your realm of knowledge that way. So uh, it's always you know been, that brings up something. Go ahead. Go ahead. I say it's always been beneficial that way to me. That you know, um, it, and it's funny to to kind of see you know if somebody was maybe watching from the outside if, of me going on these trips, they kind of would probably look at me and go, "Man, you got this really pensive look on your face, like you're not having a good time." You know, and that's I guess yeah. <laughs> part of it is that like you go and 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 you're working on these things, and and it's not I, you know I couldn't describe it as like oh it's a great time because it's challenging, uh, you know I get a, a lot of things like you know frustration as you run up against these things that you you didn't know about or you thought you were doing one way and you realize you've been doing it uh, wrong or not quite correct and and so or some things just are so kind of beyond you at that moment that you just huh. Um, so many times, yeah. You, if somebody's looking from the outside in, they see like you don't look like you're having a good time, and it's like, well, I'm not. I'm not here to have a good time. Uh, you know, right. that's that's secondary. I'm here to you know, the food's great and the culture's things. great. That's fun, but yeah, I'm I'm yeah. here to be put in that space of of uh, not comfortable and not having a good time, so that I can grow. Yeah. What's funny is that you know people talk about uh, breaking out of their comfort zone but they want to control how they're going to break out of their comfort zone. <laughs> right. That's just I, I want to get out of my comfort zone comfortably. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I want to do it my way. Right. right. Well, uh, okay. Well, you let me know how that works for you, right? Um, yeah. So, but that, your, your little thing there kind of brought up something that uh, and we talk about, I think we talked about this in different shows, but all these calls tend to run together because I have two different training groups for my online guys and I've done webinars and all kinds of things. So um, I just, I, I'm going to say something that I hear myself saying a lot. So I just make the assumption that people have heard it, but I'm going to say it again, just in case you haven't. And that is uh, that we make these assumptions 
uh, well, here's here's something, and uh, Lee was Lee was in for spring camp. Uh, one of the techniques that we uh, played around with, uh, because we were doing you know stealth and invisibility and and power and those kind of things, right? So one of the invisibility techniques that we were playing with uh, during camp was one called hey he, okay? hey he. I think it's a I don't know what it is now. I, it's, I think it's either a Shinden Fudo or a Kuki Shinden Kata, but it's called Heihi, H-E-H-I, Heihi. And um, there's this point in the Kata, right? You you, you do this counter to, to him, uh, you know, trying to punch you. And then what you do is you reach up with uh, uh, Chin Ken or Shitan Ken, and you crack, you just pop the, the, the orbit of the eye, right? You hit that bone ridge, right? You hit that. And it's hard enough to knock his head sideways. I mean, you hit him, right? And then what you do as soon as you hit him is you leap in the same direction, right? You leap in the same direction that his head got knocked, right? And what ends up happening is if he didn't drop, right, he mm-hmm. comes whipping back around to find you again, and he's lost you, right? You're standing right there next to him to do your finish, but he can't see you, right? And he will look around for a quick half second to a second or two, right? But the last place he will look is where you're standing. Hmm. And this is so counterintuitive because you hit his head in that direction, and then you leap into that spot, right? So you're right in front of his nose, right in front of his eyes. You've done this, Scott. It was a, hmm. uh, uh, what, Mod 3, Kata, something like hmm. that for, mm-hmm. for our curriculum. And so uh, but people can't figure out, well, why can't he see it? Anybody looking from the outside is like, well, he's got to be a freaking moron. You're right there. But to make this technique work, there's a certain timing thing that goes with it, but we have to understand that the shot to the orbit of the eye right there causes his eyes to close to protect his Mm -hmm. eyes, and it's painful, and there's an imperative need to get his eyes back open and right back to the last spot where he saw you, which was right in front of him, Right. right? And what happens is you have to understand sight. Not just that your eyeballs do this thing and that's how you see things and all that. You have to understand sight, sight consciousness, and the process and and this whole blur thing that occurs, right? That your eyes are closed and as you come back to where you were standing or where you were looking originally and your eyes are opening and the world is passing by very quickly, you're not – and there's also a a psychology thing going with this, right? You're not looking for this guy anywhere else but the last place you saw him when he popped you in the eyeball, right, or in the, on, the, on the orbit of the eye. So you want to get right back there as quickly as possible. So there's an assumptive thing working on. There's, there's all this subconscious, unconscious um, kind of thing working, right? Their eyes, while the eyelids are opening, literally pass right past you and never see you because, one, you're a blur, two, the eyes are only half open, and three, he has an assumption, Right? He's heading back in that direction. That's what makes you invisible, not blinding powder, not clouding his mind, not doing some kind of weird woo-woo thing. It's something so mundane that you can actually exploit it and take advantage of it, right? Why would you not, right? Now, I told you that so I could remind everybody that when you learn the technique, right, don't confuse learning a, a technique with knowing a technique and don't confuse knowing a technique with being a master of that technique. Okay, so when you learn the technique, you were a certain rank, age, you had a certain amount of understanding, knowledge, 
experience, background, all that kind of stuff, right? Which we forget, which is one of the reasons why people don't like going back and working on the same techniques again, because they already, quote unquote, know that technique. Except that, remember all the limitations I just mentioned that you had when you learned that technique. So mm. it was impossible to learn that technique to a degree higher than your own experience, knowledge, assumptions, point of view. So how many training wheels yeah. or how many little magic pieces or whatever, these things that I go to Japan for, how many things were missing? And then you get a couple of ranks higher or a couple of years higher or whatever. You've got all this extra understanding that you could go back and look at that technique again and see all these extra things. Hmm. But people don't do that. They either they either avoid going back there because, well, I know that one. You know, I, 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 I'm already good at that one. I'm, I'm satisfied. I want to learn more of, of the techniques I, don't, I haven't learned yet. So they're the kata collectors, right? Hmm. Or when they go back, they have already determined that this is the way the technique is done. They already understand it. So they somehow suspend all of this knowledge and understanding and, and, and ability and all that, and they go back to this technique, and they do it the same way they've always done it as a beginner or intermediate student or whatever, right? They don't, they don't transfer this new understanding, this new, uh, you know, tactical application, the new strategic thinking, the new little control things, because, well, you know, the kata doesn't say to do it that way. The kata doesn't say a whole lot of anything. It gives you a couple of points of reference. You're supposed to overlay your knowledge and ability to be able to translate these things. I mean, it, that's what it allows Hatsumis to say, to go to used book places or whatever and buy densho and scrolls and all that from defunct lineages and open these things up and understand them to a 70 to 90 degree accurate level and then yeah. go and explore the rest of it to try yeah. to understand their perspective and things. And then, you know, often he'll look at you and go, there's a reason why it ended up being defunct because their, their view on things um, didn't didn't keep up with the times or, you know, what mm. armor changed or battlefield tactics or whatever, right? Um, so people end up crystallizing things. But uh, mm. one of the biggest things that, that we allow to get in our way is to believe that a technique is a beginner technique because we learned it when we were a beginner. No, maybe it's just a type of technique that makes it easier to convey the, tech, the, the principles and concepts to a beginner. But there's no such thing as a beginner technique, right? Most people mm. have no clue... Mm -hmm that the techniques on the Jodi Akunomaki or the Shoden, right, the first level scrolls, that they're not the beginner techniques. They're the core essence of the lineage. Those are the highest level techniques. The Chuden and the Okuden, what we look at as middle and high level techniques, those are what if. Those, those are subsequently more what if for, for certain types of conditions, right? But the shodan, the first level, right, what people talk about as beginner, um, the, the, the kanji for show in this case can be translated as head of class, right, or most important position. Hmm. So it's be careful 
you know, we, we, we tend to take these incorrect translations or here's a word that's being used, right? And then we get all wrapped around it from our 21st century understanding, Western perspective and all that. And we don't know our ass from a hole in the ground, but we try to translate this in a way that, well, you know, it makes sense, for, makes sense to me. Well, who cares? Is that what the original masters meant? Okay. This is why I go to Japan. This is why I go to seminars. Right? It's to fill in these pieces, not to learn more monkey tactics. Right? There's an infinite way to, to do, you know, to use the, well, I guess there's a finite way to use the human body. But with the tactics and all that, I mean, look at all the different variations there could possibly be. Right? I'll, I can pick up the, the, the moves. Right? I don't need to go there for the moves. I'm certainly not going to drop three to $4,000, right? which is way more than most people drop. I mean, you know how much I train when I go. And mm -hmm. we also travel around the country to different historically significant places. So people are learning and engaging with the art much more than just like every other karate guy. Right? So Yeah. I think I've shared that before that my last trip uh talked to a few other students that were there and uh I'd seen them at classes uh kind of at the end of the previous week and then caught back up with them days later and and kind of got this hey uh so where were you and you know explained that oh I I I went out to the Nagano area to go up uh to Gakure Mountain Sagakushi and and right. the guy looked at me and said well what'd you do that for <laughs> you know yeah. so it was like <laughs> Why'd you go all the way out there? <laughs> and, and it really hit me, you know, because I, I almost kind of had this assumption like, ah, everybody knows about that, right? And no, no, people don't. And, yeah. uh, you know, so it was eye-opening there too. Yeah. On one of my next trips coming up, and I, I'm probably not going to do it on a fall trip because I can't guarantee what the weather's going to be like on the mountains. It's typically like much colder and all that. Um, so it'll probably be a spring trip. Um, but I'm going to go to Mount Kumano, which is south, east or west? Uh, south. It's south and either east or west. There's a mountain range um, uh, south of Kyoto, which, of course, Kyoto is a bowl within a bunch of mountain ranges, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, that's what made it so easily defendable way back in the day and why it was chosen as a capital city. Um, but um, Mount Kumano uh, is both... Uh, and this is from Hatsumi Sensei stuff, and that's why people need to learn how to, or not either learn how to, but don't take things for granted that are right in front of you. Like the little write-up on the back of the Quest videos that's in Japanese, mm. and he makes these little comments here or there, right? He tosses little things out. Um, yeah, there's a lot there, right? So Mount Komano is um, the birthplace or a very significant place uh, as in, like, the, the uh, very significant to the Gyoko, Gyoko school, okay? Hmm. Uh, it's also one of the places where the Yamasa Tatara, uh, the secret teachings were kept, and it's also the place where uh, the founder of Reiki went and had his divine epiphany when he discovered this stuff. Uh, I, I think he just found a temple where this Yamasa Tatara stuff was and, uh, you know, did it because in Reiki... They have some of the same Kuji hand positions for healing that we have in our uh, that we have in our Kuji and our non-syllable stuff that goes with the Manjushri teachings. So, uh, yeah, I, I keep going to you know these other places, but uh, I, next time we go to Kyoto, 
uh, next time I go, uh, and it's uh, one of these spring trips or whatever, uh, probably won't be going to Kyoto. I'll be going to Kumano. But I've got to work out the details so that I'm still not taking more than a day or two away from my physical training. Because I'm only there for a certain amount of time, right? So yeah. until mm-hmm. my life changes and I can spend three to six months in Japan um, living, eating, and breathing needed to, which is going to be really expensive, um, mm. Mm-hmm. Then you know so, but anyway, uh, yeah, that's that's on my to do list as well as several other things that have been mentioned along the way that I have in my notes or that are on the back of these DVDs or whatever. I'm just I'm I'm gonna go do those things. Why? Because experiencing it is very different than just reading about it in the book. Kind of yeah. like when I take you guys to Tugakushi and we take that little side detour to go to the spot where the dojo stood that uh, Daisuke Nishina trained in when he was a student just like you, right? You can read about it, you can hear about it, all that kind of stuff, but it's not until you're standing on that plot of land and I say, you know, we hold these people in high esteem, but just remember that this guy trained here when he was a student just like you. Now, how does that make you feel? And it's a very unique experience, isn't it? It is. Right? Because until then, Daisuke Nishina, a.k.a. Daisuke Tukakure, the founder of the Tukakure School, was just a grandmaster of a lineage, one of nine that we that we said they had Soke ship of, or uh, was, you know, uh, a name you read about, right, or whatever, right? It wasn't until you hit that point, and I remind you that this guy was once a student just like you, and oh, by the way, you're standing on in the space where the dojo that he trained in stood. And uh, Yamabushi, right, uh, they're the Japanese equivalent of druids, right, go there all the time. And uh, it's it's a place of empowerment, right? They still do that. It, well, the dojo that I'm talking about was a Yamabushi dojo, and Daisuke Nishina was trained in this Yamabushi mountain mm-hmm. asceticism. So uh, cool stuff, right? Uh, Absolutely. So I'm, I'm betting that the last time you went without me, you still crossed that fallen tree oh, yeah. bridge to get over to that spot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So when people say, why would you go there? You know, what's so special about that place? Oh, I know. I read about it in the book uh, at one point, but what's, what's the big deal? I know exactly where they are in their head about their training. Okay? Either some yeah. teacher did not, you know, expand it to this level, and they're not passing on the things that Mr. Tate teaches about. You know, he talks about, you know, this is like this no play, or this is like this this um, a certain type of poem, or this this writer, you know, discussed this in this play or book or whatever, right? Hatsumi Tate is giving you all kinds of suggestions that you could go read, but he's what he's doing is he's pointing out all the stuff that he did outside of kata training to get him to this point where we can go, Wow, the guy's like magical. Uh, yeah, there's a whole lot of study and energy and effort and all that behind that. So, yeah. So, anyway. Well, we've run well, uh, way long on our time. Holy <laughs> crap. Good, good stuff. All right. Yeah. you got to just tell uh, me to shut the hell up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Are you kidding? This is the good stuff. Well, you're in uh, California. <laughs> okay. <fair enough. laughs> you're um, safe from knuckles anyway. Let's see if we uh, – I don't know if we have any – Last-minute quick questions we can get to. Oh, but, yeah, yeah, uh, Don't see any on the webcast side. I muted us out earlier, so let's see if 
Well, there's a couple people on the webcast or on the webcast on the phone yeah. now. So we've, we've got a quick couple of minutes. If anybody has a, a question or comment, uh, looks like David's on, Lee's on. I don't know if anybody else is on, but those are the two that I see. So uh, questions, comments, complaints. You may have to unmute yourself. Maybe they were double muted. Man, I would certainly get a complaint or two. Oh, come on. I, I, I fish for complaints. No one ever I try complained. to the water to get a complaint. I know. But I know. Like, but they do unsubscribe from the uh, from the Kuden uh, uh, <laughs> subscriber list, though. Yeah. So they just, uh, you know, this guy sucks. <laughs> Maybe I'm not giving out enough secrets. Anyway. Lee, are you there? Hello, Lee. Tuning in. I'm here. No, I'm oh, there you are. <coughs> sound like you're underwater. I am here. Right. Question. I've, I've got. I've, I don't know what uh, uh, question. I guess would be how would you translate the short blade long saya into like firearms? Like how would that translate? Uh, short talking blade about, long saya. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I can't get shotguns are. I'm trying to find myself. I'm trying to find myself a question so that, you know, I I'm, I'm, I look good and, and stuff. That's, that's great. <laughs> Keep trying. Wow. <laughs> right. uh, a lot of that probably, I would I would think, translates maybe not directly, but, you know, certainly there's a lot of uh, handgun frames that are made for concealed carry with shorter barrels, uh, things like that, that <laughs> may may speed up the draw. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I was. I was. It's just uh, it, the idiotry of the whole idea of, like, say, getting a uh, a four inch uh, uh, revolver gun and putting it in a six inch, you know, same yeah. style and all that, with J frame and right, all. Right. Put it in a six yeah. inch you holster get, get for up. no other reason. Like, up. there's really no no <laughs> no reason for it to even be that way. But, yeah. 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 My uh, my Smith and Wesson Model 44 uh, is basically the Dirty Harry. Uh, Revolver, right? Nice. Um, I have it in a six inch because that's the combat barrel. Uh, you can get it into eight, ten, twelve, or whatever, but now that's like hunting because you need a longer sight thing for things, right? I mean, uh, that's that's different, right? But that thing actually comes in a four inch snub nose version, which is ludicrous to me because it's going to freaking <laughs> torque the crap out of your wrist, right? But you can get it that way. Why? I don't know. But it's the same reason that there's instructions, you know, for not using a hair dryer while you're sleeping um, in the instruction things, and it's because people have freaking done it. So apparently there's enough of a, of a demand for it that, uh, you know, whatever. Or uh, I've seen Derringers that come in 38 caliber hmm. um, instead of like a 25 or a 32 or something like that. Um, yeah, you really have to hold on to those babies because while most people would go, 38? <laughs> You know, uh, you've obviously fired a 38 out of a mid medium range or a medium uh, frame revolver, and not out of this little thing that barely fits in the palm of your hand, right? So um, hold on to that. Right? But, <laughs> yeah, people, people like things, right? Some people just like power, right? I got myself a 40 caliber. I've got myself a um, dude. If you're using that for self defense, you need to keep the muzzle on the target as uh, you know, as often as possible so that you can double tap to make sure that you drop the person every time you engage the target, right? If you're firing something and it pops up in the air, like, you know, 
in most of the Dirty Harry movies, he uses it single-handed, and the muzzle pops up. Well, it's because if you hit the guy, um, you only need to hit him once. But you have to reposition that and, and reestablish your sight line, right? So why would you get something that is that requires that to happen all the time? That's why the U.S. Army stopped using the M14 and went with the M16 because the M16 is a smaller round, and you've got all the suppression stuff on it, um, you know, the, the the buffer in the stock and all that, that keeps the muzzle on target, right? So you don't have stray. You're not wasting ammunition, right? But, you see, these are considerations and principles and concepts that people need to think about when they're engaged in actual combat study and not just who's got the coolest-looking kicks or who can do the come line better than everybody else or whatever. Um, yes. Anyway. But, Looks uh, here like uh, my screen just David refreshed. has a David. hand up. Yeah, yeah David is his hand I see a hand. Hey, hey there. There it is. Hey, um, David. What's up? Were you, were you able to uh, get to Quarrow.com? It's that forum about the uh, who would win a samurai versus ninja question asked a few weeks ago. I didn't see it. Did you see it? Hmm. I sent the link. Oh. I sent the link. Huh. But, uh, oh, no. Hmm. I didn't see it. I'll have to go back and so, double So the question is, who, who would win a fight between a ninja and a samurai? Yes. Did it's you send a link to a video or something? Of, of feudal Japan, I guess. Hmm. Well, what's what's the what's the paradigm here? Because if they're if they're facing off, uh, I don't really know. It was just a question that was asked on for, on Quora dot com. Yeah. Oh. oh. Uh, like a forum. Okay. Yeah. Oh, hmm. maybe maybe I did see it and got caught up with other things. I'm, I'm sorry, um, but see when people start asking questions about that, uh, that's like asking a question as to you know who would. Who would win uh, a fight, a uh, karate guy or, uh, you know, a police sharpshooter, right? Um, yeah. People often want to know, or the, the karate against judo guy or whatever, right? Um, th- there's a lot more to it than just looking at samurai versus ninja because the samurai, right, they were forbidden from using what we would call counterintuitive tactics, right? They have to do things very specifically and all that, right? So if we're taking on somebody like that head-to-head, right, that'd be like me going up against somebody who's an MMA fighter, which I'm not going to do, and I have to do it in the ring with him. Um, There are all these rules. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's not what I train for, right? I train for self-defense, and um, there are no rules on the street. So he better be prepared for a finger in the eye socket or, you know, whatever. Um, The rules are there to keep things even and fair. So that's really the conventional mindset. Um, see, I think there's a the, big misconception too that the two would have really faced off. Uh, you know, so much of yeah, the, what I've come across historically, you know, the, the a samurai often were fighting against other samurai, uh, and, and right. these you know right. ninja samurai battles really weren't a thing, and in in the way we think about them, done up in the movies or something. Uh, and and there's so many examples too of like the um, Hanzo Hattori kind of thing that uh, you know to everyone he was known as a samurai who was you know yeah. put in charge of protecting the East Gate. Samurai from Iga. 
Right. So, you know, that's what he was known as, yet it was this subversive underlying thing that people didn't understand until much later looking back at history that, well, okay, he, he was had this ninja uh, background to him. So, yeah, I think, you know, what the question there is not really a realistic one or, or doesn't kind of align with... Well, samurai caught or, ninja all the time. I mean, these guys are boiled in oil and all kinds of crap. I mean, you know, so... Um, but remember that a ninja's primary job in ancient Japan was uh, espionage. It was spying. It was mm-hmm. information gathering, right? So if a ninja ended up face-to-face with a samurai, that's where Shuriken and all this other stuff came in because you do something to get the hell out of there, right? There are these hit-and-run kind of tactics and things like that. Um, if a ninja is going to take on a samurai, uh, that's where poisons and all that other stuff come in place. So it really, it, it really uh, you know, determines the, the context. Uh, the, the ninja's armor would have been very, very different. Uh, it's just, it's, it's different stuff, right? Uh, and that's something people need to remember, right? In the schools of the, of the Bujinkan, while we have overlaid ninja mindset over the different kata, right, um, only three of those nine lineages are ninja schools. And the kata and the, and the tactics look very, very different from the, the, the things in the other six. So... Uh, the other six were samurai schools, right? And only three were were ninja schools. So uh, we're looking at something very, very different. So I, we I, are, this is one of those these timeless questions. So yeah. I, I can't. I, this is something that I'm not going to our time limit here. Just to throw that out. There. Yeah, 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 yeah. So <laughs> I'm just going to finish this with the. I don't know that that's answerable uh, yeah. because you know, you know, who who would win? Army special forces. Green Beret or uh, the old Russian Spetsnaz. I don't think it comes down to <laughs> something that general. I think it comes down to the individual combatants that are facing off. Because yeah. no matter who they are, if one has better technique than the other one, then that's the person who's going to win. But we can't yeah. make that be the determining factor as, you know, samurai is always going to be the ninja or ninja is always going to be a samurai. It's going to come mm. down to the individual combatants. So, anyway... That being said, uh, we we are going to get kicked off here pretty soon. So, uh, yep. David, I'm sorry I couldn't go much more deep than that, but that's that's my take. Uh, <laughs> if that doesn't work for you, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway. Great. All right. All right. So well, uh, yeah, we're just about out of time, and we've got uh, more questions to follow uh, next week from Gianfranco we'll talk about. But, of course, in the meantime, you can collect up those questions, get them to us as well. And we'll get to those on upcoming episodes of Kuden. Uh, make sure to follow us on Facebook. Uh, we've got you know, a couple things that will be coming out that way, uh, more posts to kind of comment on throughout the week leading up to shows. Yeah, your new video is ready to be posted, by the way. Oh, excellent. Yeah, So, and we the were just sword. talking about yeah, sword right, yeah. stuff today and Tagakure sword. That's yeah. actually the, the one that I have uh, in, in the video I'm doing an example of. So uh, you can look for that here soon on our Facebook page. That's right. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, again for joining us, and we'll see you on the next episode of Kuden. Thank you for listening to Kuden, the podcast for self-defense and martial arts news, interviews, techniques, and history. For more information on upcoming martial arts seminars, camps, and classes with Sheehan Miller, or to submit a question or discussion topic to the show, call 570-884-1118 or visit warrior-concepts-online.com.